how many of you guys thought, those of you who are adults, thought when you were younger, when you got to the year 2020, things would be a lot more futuristic than they are? Anybody? You know, the Jetsons were supposed to take place in the year 2020. My house isn't in the sky. I don't have a treadmill for my dog, and I don't have a flying car. And I don't have a robot made. So we're not quite there yet. If you don't know what the Jetsons are, well, you, you need to know what the Jetsons are. It's part of Americana. It's culture. It's part of your history. Look it up. And, but how often is that the case when we anticipate a new year we think it's going to look like this, and we anticipate what it's going to look like, and we think about what it's going to look like, and we even sometimes plan about what it's going to look like, and then when it gets here, it's not quite what we thought it was going to be like, right? In December, you're thinking about maybe towards the end of the year, Christmas has passed, you're in the gap between Christmas and New Year's, and you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, what that's going to be like. January 1 hits, and you're gung-ho, and you're doing them. January 2 hits, and you've thrown them out the window, and it's not quite what it looks like. Well, we're going to start something today, a new series, a new sermon series that's going to take us, uh, uh, it's going to be several sermon series, but we're going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's on page 809 if you're using the Bible on the rack in front of you. It's in Matthew chapter 5 if you brought a Bible with you. It'll also be on the screen. It's on our website. Uh, all the notes are on our website there at dequeen.church. You can find them there. Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is, is starting something with his disciples. You see, he spends a couple of years preparing them for when he's not going to be physically around. And so he's getting them ready to lead what's coming. They don't quite know what it's going to look like. They don't quite know how to manage something that he's going to give them. But he's spending this time. But notice what, what, I, also, what I love, what I find fascinating, is he doesn't spend those couple of years, you know, instructing them in administrative tasks and how to manage their mega church they're going to get. He spends the time investing in them theologically pouring into them the Word of God. And so he invests that time in showing them what it looks like to walk in the Spirit daily. And what we have, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, is the longest teaching of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And from what we can tell through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that Jesus sometimes would teach something to some people, and then he would take that same teaching and teach it to somebody else, changing a few things here and there, but more or less the same teaching. And what we see here, in Matthew, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is this massive sermon, so the Sermon on the Mount is what it's called, uh, and he does some of these teachings at other points, some of the other Gospel writers record uh, different elements of some of the teachings that are in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 at other points of his ministry. But Jesus here in Matthew 5, beginning in Matthew 5, uh, this is the beginning of his ministry. He's, he's starting here. He has um, been choosing his disciples, his close disciples, and this whirlwind, groundswell movement begins right before Matthew 5. So, just back up a couple of verses in Matthew 4, starting in verse 23. Uh, Matthew writes, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So this is what Jesus is doing, okay? Is he is kind of touring the region and he's walking into the synagogues, and it says he's teaching in the synagogues. Now, he gives two different words here for teaching. He's teaching in the synagogues, and he's proclaiming the gospel. And usually in Scripture, when these two terms are used in the gospels, the teaching is to people who know Scripture. The teaching is to the, quote-unquote, believers. And the proclaiming of the gospel is to the unbelievers, it's to the unchurched, the people who aren't familiar with the gospel in Scripture. And so when it says... He's teaching in the synagogues. He's going to the synagogues, the people who know the Jewish scriptures, the people who know the Old Testament, and he's teaching them. He's showing them what's coming because they're supposed to know scripture. And so he's drawing from what they know, scripture, and he's showing them uh, what God's plan is for them today. 
And then he's also going to people who don't know the Scripture. He's going to people who have no idea about anything in Scripture. And it says he's proclaiming the gospel, the good news that God is bringing to them just as much as to the church people. And it says, so he's doing all this teaching. And then he's also healing every disease and affliction among the people. Now, those two words, disease and affliction, it's, it's not just two different ways to say the same thing. The disease is the illness and the sickness, and the affliction, the way it's used here, is talking about like the side effects, the after effects, the residual issues that come once the disease is passed. You know, sometimes the afflictions, the, side, the, the aftermath of the disease is sometimes worse than the actual disease because it lingers for a long time. And so it says Jesus is healing the specific diseases and the afflictions that the people have. Look at verse 24. So because of this, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So this word spreads about his teaching, about his proclaiming the gospel, about all this healing of diseases and these afflictions. And so everybody starts bringing him other people, other sick people, other people who have diseases. And it says these pains, this is like a severe pain, like from torture, like uh, unbearable pain. They're bringing him to Jesus because there's no other way to, to rid themselves of these pains. And the people who are oppressed by demons, the people who are constantly uh, just beat down by these spiritual entities, they bring these people to Jesus. And it says, he heals them. Every single one of them, he heals them. All right? And so because of this, these people, his fame not just continues to spread, but these people who are healed, the people who are hearing the teaching and the proclaiming of the gospel, verse 25 Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. That's a group of ten cities. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So pretty much everybody in the, vic- the vicinity, in, in the, the, within hearing distance of what's going on, come to Jesus. This, I mean, you know, it's one of those things like, a, like a, on social media, a viral post. Everybody hears about it. And so everybody in this day and age goes out there and wants to see for themselves what's going on. And so it says a great crowd. Now, I love that. I mean, it's very general, a great crowd. But the idea behind that phrase is the crowd is so massive, they don't have time to count everybody. This is huge, just absolutely, incredibly huge. Numbers of people are flocking to Jesus as he's going from town to town, even as he's out in the middle of nowhere in between towns. He's out there. And so he's receiving all these many followers. And so it's in that context that he gives the Sermon on the Mount. All these people are wanting to follow him. And so what the Sermon on the Mount is is kind of a description of what it will look like if you follow Jesus. If you really want to follow Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives says, okay, here's here's what that looks like, what you have to expect, but also how you will want to live if you want to follow me. And so, having acquired these great crowds, he gives the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So he sees the crowd. He goes up on this hilly region, this mountainous region, and he sits down. His disciples come to him, and the crowd gathers around the disciples, and he's there sitting, and everybody's gathered there, and he's teaching. And he starts his Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching, with what are called the Beatitudes. It's several phrases that all start with, blessed are the dot, dot, dot. Now, that blessed, it's not really a, a, you know, the best understanding of what that word means in the original language. It, 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 more accurate translation would be fortunate. I mean, you could say happy as well, but you could say fortunate are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be fortunate because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so you look at that and you say, okay, the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? How can we be poor in spirit. Why, why would you be blessed? Why would you be fortunate? 
to be poor in spirit. Now, so a lot of these are characteristics and, and things that can be acquired in how to live. To be poor in spirit means to be humble. He's talking about humility here, not thinking highly of yourself. To be poor in spirit, humility. It's acknowledging God's spiritual provision. And God's provision responds to humility. Like he says there, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are fortunate if you are poor in spirit. You are fortunate if you are humble because you have access to the entire kingdom of heaven. God's provision responds to humility. Now, sometimes God will present an opportunity in my life that exposes a need that I may have. Or, I may, or to put it another way, you may be experiencing something or going through a situation that you realize in going through that situation, you don't have what it takes in your own strength to get through it, to provide your way out of it. You need God to do that. You need God to do that. And it will provide then. That opportunity that exposes my need provides a, a, a demonstration for one of two responses. On my part, if I'm in the middle of a situation and I realize that uh, uh, I can't keep my head above water, I will either respond in great anxiety because I don't have the strength in my own, or I will respond in humility. I will respond in humble trust in God's provision. I will trust that God can get me through the health scare. I will trust that God will get me through the financial issue. I will trust that God will get me through whatever season and experience I'm going through. Or I will have great anxiety because I will try to do it myself. And so what Jesus is preaching here, he says, fortunate are you if you're humble because the kingdom of God will be yours. Fortunate are you if you trust God's provision because a, a complete access to all that the kingdom of heaven provides will be at your fingertips. God's provision responds to humility. Look at the next phrase, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Fortunate are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Are those who mourn. Now, we can mourn for a lot of things. Typically, when we say mourn, we're thinking of when somebody dies. We think, well, I'm mourning afterwards. I'm, I'm experiencing this grief. I'm dealing with it. But you can, you know, that's the typical way we use that phrase now. But in reality, we mourn for anything that is lost. You know, we mourn for a lost a dream that dies. We, we mourn when, when a, we lose a job. We mourn when our expectations are obliterated. We, we can mourn in different ways when... Different things happen in our lives that did not go the way we thought they would go. And we experience this period of mourning. Now, it's different degrees. Hopefully, it's different degrees. You know, you, you, you don't mourn the same, you know, when uh, someone passes away as, as when someone in your house eats the last piece of cake. Hopefully, that's not the case for you. Uh, but, but you mourn in different degrees, but it's all mourning. And he says, fortunate are you when you mourn. Because you will be comforted. You experience comfort. Now, the way he's describing this is you will be comforted. You can experience some of that comfort now, but notice it's in the future tense. In the previous verse, it was in the present tense. For theirs is the kingdom of God. You can access it fully now. But now he's saying you will be comforted. Will be comforted. And, and comfort, that's perfect comfort. Absolute comfort. We can experience some of that comfort now, but it will only be complete in the future. But only if you know Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus. He's talking specifically about heaven, like in uh, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, there will come a time, I think it's verse 4, when there will be no more mourning, no more weeping, no more pain in that day. But we can experience this comfort. And, and the only way we can experience this comfort is in the midst of the morning. That's the only way we can experience this type of comfort is in the middle of the morning. If you don't mourn, you can't experience it. And so you don't know that level of God's compassion. It's only in the morning that you can have it. And mourning is a natural emotional response. 
And that comfort is available to any follower of Jesus. Any follower of Jesus. In part now, but in the future, absolute and complete. So, verse 3, he talked about being humble. Now, in verse 4, he talked about experiencing God's comfort. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Now, some of you may have studied that word meek before. But typically, in modern American culture, when we hear meek, we don't hear it as something we want to aspire to. We, we think, okay, well, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Okay, cool, that's great, whatever. I've heard that before. But it's not something that I'm stri- I wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to be meek today. I'm gonna, it's on my to-do list. Be meek when I talk to this person. Be meek when I go here. Be meek when that person wants to watch that thing on TV that I don't want to watch, but I want to watch the football game this afternoon. Be meek in that moment. But what does meek actually mean? Meek is not weak. Meek is not weakness. It's not the same. It may sound the same. That may be why we associate it with weakness in our brains, but that's not what it means at all. Meek, to be meek, to, be, to experience meekness or demonstrate meekness, it, it means to uh, intentionally restrain strength. Intentionally restrain strength, meekness. For a follower of Jesus, to be meek is trusting that God will provide and take care of everything. It's pulling back your strength and trusting in God's strength. It's intentionally restraining strength, trusting that God will provide, that God will take care of it, and God will take care of the moment. Meekness is faith in God's strength. Meekness is faith in God's strength, in God's sovereignty, trusting that God will provide it that God will take care of it. Meekness is a demonstration of faith. It, it is a reliance on his strength and not mine. And so when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, fortunate are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All the blessings, all that God can give in his divine power as creator is at our fingertips if we trust him. Not if we go out and try to pursue it all, we will fail and we will stumble and we will fall. It's only under his guidance and his strength will we find the fulfillment of that verse. Blessed are the meek, fortunate are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Fortunate are those who hunger and thirst for they will be satisfied. He's talking about craving. He's talking about there's something deep within you. Like, have you ever woken up in the morning and been craving a specific meal, and you're thinking about that meal? Like, there's been days, one of my favorite things to eat is hamburgers. Anybody like hamburgers? Good. You can all be my friends. Uh, and, you wake, and you're thinking about it all day long. You've talked about it. We're going to have hamburgers for dinner, and, and, and you can't wait. And, and you can almost taste it. You're thinking about it all. Now, some of you are thinking you're going to go home and grill, even though it's cold, because you want some hamburgers. You're thinking about it all day, and then you get home, and you walk in, and, and, and everybody else starts wanting, and they've already started cooking quesadillas. Now, quesadillas are great. I love quesadillas. But if I'm craving hamburgers all day long, I'll begrudgingly eat those quesadillas and pretending they're hamburgers because I wanted hamburger. I've been craving it, and I want it, and I'm not satisfied when I don't get it. And so he's talking here about craving. Blessed are those, fortunate are those who hunger, who crave righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now, righteousness... He's not talking about a perfect, you trying to live perfectly. He's not talking about you having a perfect life because we can't be perfect. We're imperfect people. What he's talking about is God's plan for your life, God's will. If you hunger and thirst for God's will for you, if you hunger and thirst for God's plan for you, you will receive satisfaction. Because this, but this craving for God's will, I mean, any Christian would say, yeah, I want God's will for my life. But there's a difference between simply wanting it and having a craving that results in action. 
Having a craving that's so strong it results in action. Like, for instance, if I'm craving hamburgers all day, well, then I should have told everybody I want hamburgers. I should have said, I'm going to go to Walmart, and I'm going to buy the meat, and I'm going to come home early, and I'm going to start the grill, and I'm going to cook the hamburgers. My craving would not have, you know, in that illustration, was not strong enough to spark action. I was trying to put out mental vibes so everyone would read my mind. It just didn't work, and I got frustrated. And so he's saying, this craving for hunger, this craving for righteousness, this craving for God's will needs to be so powerful that it sparks action. And so a craving so powerful for God's plan that it sparks action will be satisfied. Satisfaction in spiritual matters can only come from action. You can have the desire within you all day long, but if it doesn't result in action, it means nothing. You can say all day long, hey, I I know I need to pray more. You can tell people in the hallways at church, one of the biggest lies in church is, I will pray for you. And you don't. Am I right? You forget about it two seconds later, and then you see them, hey, thanks for praying for me. Oh, okay. God help them real quick. Oh, yeah, I prayed for you, man. It's good. I hope he did something great in your life. You know, and we... need to have a craving so powerful that it sparks action. Sparks action in our own spiritual lives and how much time we spend with the Lord in our kids' lives, in in our friends' lives, in our work life, in in the interactions we have with people. We need to, to have more than simply knowing that we need to do something. It needs to result in action. Otherwise, it is pointless knowledge. A craving so powerful that it results in action. Results in action. I had a friend one time. I may have told this story, I can't remember when. His name was John. And uh, John, he was a pretty healthy guy. But his favorite food was chicken fried steak. Every, I mean, even when we'd go to Mexican food restaurants, he would order chicken fried steak. Everywhere we went, chicken fried steak, chicken fried steak. He loved chicken fried steak. Until he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, man, your heart's doing not so good. And he says, how's your diet? He goes, well, I eat this and this. And, and the doctor said, what else do you eat? Well, chicken fried steak. Yeah, what'd you have yesterday? Chicken fried steak. What'd you have a couple days ago? Chicken fried steak. There's your problem. Stop eating chicken fried steak. He said he craved it, but now he had a new knowledge that if he kept eating chicken fried steak, he was going to die. That's what the doctor said. And so he, the way John phrased it, John's a preacher. He said, chicken fried steak at that moment became dead to me. Became dead. Because I knew it would kill me. And so he had to change his entire dietary structure that was built around, chi- I mean, you've been on, you know, maybe you do keto, you know, or k- keto, keto, how do you say it? Keto or paleo or you do, you know, the, the sourdough diet and all you eat sourdough bread. That, that's a great one. Or John was on the chicken fried steak diet <laughs> and it was killing him. Uh, and, and so from that point on, he had to change the entire structure of his life because he knew he couldn't do anything. Or he, he would not live beyond a certain point if he kept doing this. And so his new craving was to live, and that sparked action in to stop eating chicken fried steak. And so when it comes to us, you, maybe maybe it is chicken fried steak for you, and you need to stop eating chicken fried steak because it's going to kill you. But what he says here is your craving must be so powerful that it sparks action. Sparks action. Sparks action. You can say here, January 5, 2020, I know I, God wants me to read more scripture. <clears throat> I've already started on my Bible app, one of those read the Bible through in a year plans. But if you're still stuck on day one and now it's day five of the year, you need to shift something in your life because something's not quite lining up right. Something. It's not quite there. Maybe you need to do a simpler plan. Maybe the Bible in the year is not the one you need to do Bible in the three-year deal. Make a, make a you know, achievable goal there. But the craving must spark action because only then can satisfaction come, can fulfillment come. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Fortunate are those who are merciful because they will receive mercy. A lot of times, though, we only want to give mercy to people who are merciful to us, right? You don't want to give mercy to somebody who's not very nice. Maybe it's just me. Anybody else in the same boat here? You know, if somebody's not so nice, you don't want to give them mercy. 
If somebody's been mean to you, you don't want to give them mercy. If somebody's been mean to your kids, you don't want to give them mercy. If somebody has a political expression on social media that you disagree with, you definitely don't want to give that person mercy. You, you, you stay their friend on social media because you, you want to keep yourself you know, politically angry all the time. And, and you don't want to give them any mercy. We only want to be merciful to people that are merciful to us. But that's not how this Christian thing works. Jesus gave me mercy even though he knew what kind of person I am. Irregardless of myself, he gave. He gave you mercy. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. He gave it anyway. And so when he says mercy has been given and must be given, he's talking here specifically about how we're supposed to live, a merciful life. A mercy that is given us giving it away means that we have received it. Because a mercy given is a mercy received. In the same way that a mercy received is a mercy given. That if we've received Jesus' mercy, it should be a part of who we are. Coming out of our fingertips, everything we touch. That doesn't mean it's easy. Absolutely not. It's hard as all get out. But it should be a part of our want. It should be a part of that craving. And it, it turns into action in our lives. This merciful life. But the inverse is also true. Think about it in these terms. Maybe the person who's not being kind to you that you don't want to show mercy to, maybe they've never received mercy. Maybe no one's ever really shown them true mercy, and they're just showing what they've been shown. And maybe God puts you in that person's life to be the demonstrator of his mercy to them. And that's your purpose there. Maybe they'll never show you mercy, but you showing them mercy means they're going to show somebody else mercy. Maybe you showing them mercy means they go home and show their kids mercy that night, and they haven't in a while. Maybe that your existence in that person's life isn't for them to benefit you, but for you to benefit them, shining the light of Jesus where only darkness existed before. You say, but man, they're, they're supposed to be Christians, and they're supposed to be believers, and, and they're supposed to be showing me. Give it to me. Show me mercy. But in truth, if we're walking, if, if, as Jesus is teaching, if we're a follower of Jesus, your life isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And so we should be showing things like mercy, even if we're not shown it. Jesus already showed it enough for us to show it. In truth, I mean, think about it. Jesus shows us mercy every single second of every single day in, in granting us salvation from what our sins make us deserve. He has shown us mercy. And in showing us this continual stream of mercy, I have received more than enough mercy in my life from Jesus, even up just to this point, not even counting what's coming in the days ahead, even up to this point, I've received enough mercy from Jesus to be able to demonstrate that mercy to everybody else. That doesn't mean I always show it. That means a lot of times I take, you know, I take it for granted because he just shows it all the time. So I, I honestly, transparently will take it for granted. And so when somebody doesn't show me mercy and is unkind to me and doesn't give me what I think I deserve on my phone bill or at Walmart, I just don't want to show them mercy. I want to leave my cart in the middle of the aisle so they got to go around. I, <laughs> jerk. I don't want to do that. But i got to fight that because Jesus showed me mercy when I definitely did not deserve it. And I don't even know what I'm going to do in three weeks that needs even more mercy than what I needed, you know, three weeks ago. And he already showed me mercy knowing what's coming. And so we need to do that to each other as well. So blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Wow. Fortunate are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. Spiritual sight if you're pure in heart. But what does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to be pure? That means, you know, singularly focused. That means undivided. Pure. That's not allowing anything false in. In reality, this phrase, pure in heart, he's talking specifically about really an undivided loyalty to Jesus. Undivided loyalty to God. 
not spreading your loyalty around in, in you know, your mental capacity or in your heart or even in your action and saying, well, I'm loyal to, to Jesus on Sunday mornings. I'm loyal to Jesus when I get that verse of the day on my, on, on my phone. I'm loyal to Jesus here and there. But I'm not undividedly loyal to Jesus. But he's talking here about undivided loyalty. Fortunate are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Wholehearted devotion grants spiritual sight. Wholehearted devotion grants spiritual sight. It allows us to see what God wants us to see. Undivided loyalty to God grants this spiritual sight where we can see things we couldn't before. We can know where God wants us to go where we didn't know before. If we have divided loyalty, our eyes are foggy and cloudy and we can't quite see where we're going. We need his filter in front of our eyeballs to be able to see what he wants us to see. I've got bad eyes. I wear contacts. I wear glasses. If I don't, I can't see very far. Everything's kind of fuzzy out there. Even Katie and the two boys here, they would be fuzzy for me. That's a, I, I can't really see very far. I need that to be able to see clearly. You don't want me driving if I don't have that stuff. You definitely don't. I'll be all up in your business. But I need that, and I know that I need that. And so knowing that I need that should spark action within me. So in the morning, I'm either going to pop my contacts in, or if my sinuses are screwy, I'm going to put my glasses on, and I'm going to go that day being able to see. And so if, if we want spiritual sight in the same way, to be able to see what God has for us that day, God's plan for us, God's will, to be able to see each other the way God sees each other, we need to check our spirits. Do I have an undivided loyalness, loyalty to the almighty creator of everything? Or am I thinking about my own wants? Am I thinking about somebody else's you know, expectations? Or am I thinking about what God has for me? Wholehearted devotion grants spiritual sight. Now look at this next one. There's a couple more coming in just a second we're going to talk about, but this is the last in this specific series. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Fortunate are the peacemakers, those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. Those who make peace. Now, in reality, only God makes peace. But we can take God's peace and restore other people to God's peace. We can introduce God's peace because if we have the Holy Spirit, we have God's peace within us in his spirit. And we can introduce his peace into places that are very unpeaceful. We can restore God's peace between an individual person and God himself. We can introduce that peace into those broken relationships. And in doing that, we're demonstrating the exact nature and purpose of God. And so when he says, you will be called sons of God. So when we restore peace into a broken relationship between somebody and God, we become the spitting image of the Father. We're introducing peace where there was no peace. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a peace introducer? When you walk into the room, does peace come with you? Or does a spark and gasoline come with you? What is your legacy when you walk into a room? Is it more peaceful when you leave than when you came in? Are you a peacemaker? Bringing perfect peace is the defining characteristic of a child of God. Because it's not a peace that we can create. It's his peace. His peace is perfect. And when we introduce that perfect peace, we are demonstrating his heart and showing the world that we belong to him, that we are his child. Now look at these seven things, starting in verse 3. Humility, verse 3. Being comforted, verse 4. Being meek, verse 5. Uh, having a craving that turns into action, verse 6. Uh, being merciful, verse 7. Having undivided loyalty, verse 8, and being a peacemaker, a peace restorer, verse 9. And we can look at those seven things and say, man, that's a lot of stuff. I, just give me one of those. Don't give me the merciful one or the peace one. Let me give me give something a little easier, not the humble one. That's hard. Give me something easier, and I can work on that at this year, and I'll just take one of those a year, and I'll be good in seven years. Just, just let me take one a year. You said, man, that is, is, 
that's hard, right? I mean, if, if I were to mark out these seven things on a, on a list on my notes app and just say, you know, just check one off when I feel good about that one today, this is, this is like impossible. How am I going to do all this stuff? I can't get to all this stuff. I can't accomplish all of this. You know, in, in 2020, I mean, I feel like this just isn't going to happen this year. I mean, I can work on it and I can get there. I've already got enough resolutions going on. I can't try to nail these down. How in the world am I going to try to do these? And if I tried to do these, I'd be out there on my own because I don't want to tell anybody I'm trying to do them because when, when I fail with the mercy thing, they'd say, hey, you missed that one. Hey, you missed showing me mercy. You should show me mercy because that's on your little checklist there. You should do it. You failed. You're a failure. And we feel that sometimes when we don't live up to what we think God's expectations of us are. Man, I missed it. Or those little unchecked boxes in our Bible app on the days we miss that we feel like a failure. We do the little catch-up button. It makes us feel better because it you know, pops it back up to now. But it's always there in the back of our minds. You didn't quite get there. You didn't quite make it there. You're, you're out there, and we have this voice. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just me whispering in your mind. You're not good enough. You didn't accomplish it. You're by yourself. Nobody knows how, 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 how rough your life is right now. And you try to live out those seven things, and you can't accomplish those seven things, and you don't know what's going on, and you're by yourself, and nothing's going to accomplish it. You're all alone. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he said these next three verses. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. That is, insult you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he says, when you find difficulty when, when trying to accomplish God's life for you, live out God's life for you. Things get rough. Things get hard. And if you're finding no opposition to the life you're living, maybe you're actually going in the same direction as what the enemy is. Because <laughs> when you're going in opposition to the enemy, you're going to find um, resistance along the way. And so he says, when you're persecuted, when you struggle, when, when you experience insults, and now insults, again, this, does, this can be actual insults, verbal insults from another human being, but this can all also be subtle insults muttered by the enemy, Satan, in the back of your mind while you're laying awake asleep, or wa- laying awake, trying to get to sleep at night. And those things he whispers in the quiet times in your mind. He can be saying those things. And it seems like right now, man, it is hard and if you're trying to live God's life, the life he has for you, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be crazy difficult. Jesus told us that in, in John chapter 16. In this world, you're going to have trouble. It's going to happen. You're alive, so it's going to be hard. However, however, this isn't how it's always going to be. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that there will come a day when it's going to get great. He said, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth being compared to the glory that will be, that will be revealed to us. How hard it gets now in trying to live the life for God. And you can be trying to live. You can say, God, I'm living this way and I'm doing this and those seven things that are there. God, I nailed them last month. God, I nailed them. And and I'm still struggling and I still feel alone and I still got that health issue and I still have a zero in my bank account. God, it is hard to do this thing called life. It's hard And he said there in verse 12, in the same way the prophets experienced that. He mentions that also through the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, The author writes, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He said, both Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and the author of Hebrews there in Hebrews chapter 12, we're not alone. We're not going through this alone. We're not the only human in the history of the world who's experiencing the, the level of emotion and struggle and stress and anxiety and problems we're experiencing right now. The voice in your head says, yes, you are. Yes, you are alone. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows the sorrows. It's, it's, it's so bad, and nobody can relate to what you're going through. That's a lie from the enemy to keep you isolated, to keep you alone, to keep you away from the strength God has for you. He's going to whisper that mess to keep you away from who God wants you to be. And so Jesus said, you're not alone. You're not alone in living this way. God told that to Elijah, or Elijah. In the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament, he got down there with God and he laid it out and he was angry and he was mad and he was disappointed at where his life was. And he says, God, I'm the only one who's following you. And God says, stop talking. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can't see every inch of this place. You are not the only one. I mean, think about it. Really, when you get down to it, the only one who's ever existed as a singular person following God was Adam before Eve came along. And even then, you go on, that, I mean, that's as lonely as it got as a follower of God. And he lasted, what, an afternoon. And then God gave him Eve, and then there's two. Later on, when it's Noah's family, there's six, six people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wife, six. And from that point on, it never, the number never got so low ever again. So you may feel like you're alone and trying to follow God and things getting so rough, but God said to Elijah, God says through Jesus, God said through the offer of Hebrews, no, you're not alone. So every time the enemy whispers in your mind, you are alone, you are by yourself trying to follow God and things are rough and things are bad and it's never going to get better unless you go and do something you don't want to do, unless you do something that will take you away from where God wants you to go, you are alone, don't listen. Don't listen. Listen to God's promise. From Hebrews chapter 13, quoting Joshua chapter 1, God said, I will never leave you. Never leave you. Just as he has never left any of his followers. Even when one of his followers ran thousands of miles in the opposite direction from where he wanted to go and get swallowed by a giant fish, God was still there. He was not alone in the belly of a giant fish surrounded by fish guts. He was not alone. You're not alone. In Dequeen, Arkansas, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not. The devil, the devil, he wants to take 2020 from you the same way he took 2019. He wants to mess it up. He wants to, and he's already started in the lives of most of us. He's already laid the groundwork in several things he's placed in our minds and, and, and lies he's whispered to us in the darkness that we're listening to. Don't listen. I'm going to give you, how many are there, four, four statements, and we're going to put them out on social this afternoon. You can take them. You can put them as your phone, home screen. You can, you can repost. You can memorize these deals, all right? I'm going to challenge you over the next 30 days to say these every single day when you wake up, all right? I'm going to say them, and I'm going to repeat them. And after, when, not when I first say them, but when I repeat them, I want you to repeat it after me. Not right now. Just say it. So here they are. I am not alone. I am loyal to Jesus today. I am following Jesus today. I am blessed by Jesus today. I am not alone. So I guess technically it's five sentences, but two of them are the same. So now this is important because as I was going through this, I actually had originally written uh, instead of today uh, in 2020. I'm loyal to Jesus in 2020. I'm following Jesus in 2020. I'm blessed by Jesus in 2020. But when we look ahead, it can seem daunting to say for the next 360 some odd days I'm going to do this 
when in reality we're probably going to stumble this afternoon or, or you know, if, we, uh, if we're thinking about how we're going to be acting in October, we're not going to make it to July or to January you know, 14th. And so we can say, I don't know what I'm going to be doing then, but I can say right now, this is how I'm going to live today. This is how I'm going to live. I'm going to make it my goal to get, and when I step out of bed, to getting back in bed that night, that these statements would be true. To understanding in my own brain that I am not alone, that I will follow Jesus today, that I will be loyal to Jesus today, knowing full well that I am blessed by Jesus today, I am not alone. I am not alone. And, And in that same mindset, When the enemy starts to whisper to you about your loneliness, that you are alone and going through what you're going through, you know what that's your signal in you? You need to tell somebody about what you're going through. Have them pray for you. Because what that does is that battles the enemy's lie. When he says, you're alone, then you immediately say, oh, well, I'll show you, and you go tell somebody, and they pray for you. I'm not alone anymore. You battle that lie immediately with action. With action. Don't go it alone because you're not alone. Not only do you have God walking through it with you, you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses walking with you, striving with you. Not just the same experience you're going through. Maybe you share what you're going through with somebody who went through what you're going through. You say, ah, they couldn't have gone through what I'm going through. They're way younger than me. But you don't know their story. You don't know their story. Maybe God put them in your life that day for that specific reason, to bring you prayer and encouragement. So I'm going to say these, and I want you to say them after me. All right? You ready? Here we are. First Sunday, new year, new decade. This is 2020. This is the future. We're going to say this. We're going to pray. We're going to go to small groups, and we're all going to get in our flying cars, and we're going to go back to our houses, and Rosie's going to cook us some lunch. All right, here we go. That's a Jetsons joke for some of you who are too young. (laughs) Here we go. I am not alone. I am loyal to Jesus today. I am following Jesus today. I am blessed by Jesus today. I am not alone. I am not alone. That is one of the greatest lies the enemy whispers to us. You are alone. That's why it's in there twice. I am not alone. And you can feel like that little Lego man in that picture standing on a pile of bricks not knowing how to put everything together. But it's not your job to know how to put everything together. It's just your job to know how to put the next piece on. Put the next piece on. And the next piece is simply to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And you may say, I don't know what I need to be doing specifically in my whole life to be following Jesus. Well, you don't need to know about your whole life. You just need to know now. Following Jesus means knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus, spending time in his word praying. Maybe for some of you that means coming to know Jesus today for the first time. Believing in Jesus today for the first time. That Jesus died for all your sins to be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Maybe you need to believe that today. That's your access to heaven. That's your access to the creator of the universe. Is believing in Jesus' death and resurrection as a forgiveness of your sins. And if you need to believe that. You can come while we sing this song in a minute. You can come after the song's over. I'll be here. Mike is right back there in the back. We want to talk to you. We want to pray with you. We want to celebrate with you. Maybe in doing the next thing you need to do to follow Jesus, you need to be baptized this morning, just like Brandon was earlier. You need to be baptized. You need to show the world that you belong to Jesus. You need to demonstrate for yourself your faith in Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you, but it shows yourself, the world. It demonstrates what God's done in you, giving you new life. New life. And I guarantee you, we can do it today. The baptistry's full. It's cold. You'll remember it, but we can do it today. My legs are just now getting, you know, they're feeling back. You can do it right now. Demonstrate that faith in Jesus. Maybe you need to commit this craving turning into action in your family. Commit just an attainable goal to pray for your family every day. 
Pray for our church every day. Pray for the lost in Queen every day. Not just some throw-at-the-ceiling prayer, but a prayer from the depths of your spirit with absolute meaning in it. Prayer, prayer, prayer can change everything. I don't know what the next step is for you, but there are some right there. Salvation, baptism, prayer. Maybe, maybe the next step for you is, is simply to take Scripture and work through script, work through the life of Jesus. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount for the foreseeable future. Maybe you just need to start in Matthew chapter one and start going with the life of Jesus. Maybe, maybe the check marks in the Bible app are too much for you. It's too much stress, too much expectation. Maybe what you need to do is just start with Matthew chapter one, verse one, and start reading through the Gospels. Start reading through the Gospels. You say Matthew chapter one is all the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, but there's so much power there, even in the genealogy of Jesus. So much. So, I mean, just right off the, I mean, I started, I'll tell you, I'm starting to study the life of Jesus again. Specifically, diving through, that's what I'm doing. I'm starting with the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. I mean, you see the genealogy, so much richness in that. You know, there's four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and three of them had bad pasts. Like, not just bad as in Bible times bad. I'm talking Everybody in the history of the world considers their past to be bad, what they did. I'm not going to go into it because it's some of us, you know, we'll talk about it like in this context, some of the children in the room, but it's bad stuff. And Jesus lists these people in his genealogy because they, they, they were valuable. They were valuable, and that was their past, not their future. It didn't demonstrate who they were in their faith. He lists them because they were valuable. And you get on down and you talk about Joseph and you talk about the Magi, you know, and you talk about all this getting there, Jesus calling his disciples, Jesus being tempted, Jesus beginning his ministry. Then you get to the Sermon on the Mount and you get to the parables, you get to his teaching, and it will change you. Maybe that's where you need to, maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step isn't to start reading in Leviticus, it's to start reading Matthew chapter 1. I, I didn't plan to say all that I just said about reading through the Bible. That's for somebody right now, specifically in this room. I don't know who it is. That's where you need to start. You don't have a Bible? You don't have a Bible? Don't let that be an excuse. The enemy is already whispering. You don't have a Bible. You can't do that. Take one right out of the pew. I'm giving you, I'm, it's free. Take it. Take it home. It's yours. Right there on the pew rack. Take it. Take it. That's why they're there. You can use them on Sunday. You can take it home and use it. It's yours. Before you leave this room, we got some pens down here. Well, I'll write your name in the front of it. You can take it home. It's all yours. You have a Bible now. Don't let that be an excuse either. Don't let those lies get to you. Let 2020 be the future of your life and who God has for you. Because if we all of us start to pursue who God has for us, it won't just be your life that changes. It won't just be this church that changes. It won't just be the queen that changes. It will be the whole stinking world that changes if we begin to follow who it is, or if we begin to follow Jesus and become who it is he's designed us to be.